Hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, as well as wherever you get your podcasts, each week we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Evergrande is the name on everybody's lips. China's second largest property developer is struggling to service debts of up to 300 billion US dollars. The Chinese property industry has powered the country's economic growth over the past two decades, and Australian iron ore has been essential to make Chinese steel. Given the trade tensions between the two states, what does Evergrande's precarious current position mean for how Australia approaches trade with China? If Evergrande goes under, how will this impact Australia? Let's meet our panel. I'm uh, Bob Gregory uh, from ANU. I'm interested in economics, and anybody that's interested in economics has to be interested in China. I'm James Lawrenson. I'm an economist and the director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS. Um, The Chinese economy is what I'm most interested in. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt. I'm a professor at UTS. More recently, I've been more involved in China and international trade. And on my show after the pandemic, I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor James Lawrenson, who gave me some great insights. So it's great to be sharing a a panel with the two fine economists whose uh, views I follow in, in great depth. Evergrande has become a bit of a story over the last few weeks. The world's second largest property company is also the world's most indentured company at the moment, and there is a lot of concerns regarding its continued viability. James, we might get you to give us a brief overview of what is Evergrande and what's been going on. Evergrande is China's second largest property developer. And of course, the property sector, the construction sector in China um, accounts for around about 20% of China's economy. So it's a, it's a big company in a major sector of China's economy. And the other number that people are gravitating towards is that Evergrande has liabilities totaling around 300 billion US dollars. Put differently, that's around one quarter of the value of the Australian economy. It's also true that corporate defaults in China have been relatively rare. So whenever one of these things comes along, there's always a lot of speculation about what it might trigger. What is the likelihood that Evergrande will default? My own assessment is that the likelihood is quite high, but I would caution against saying that's going to spill over into a property sector collapse in China more generally, because I think the Chinese government has the capacity to bail out those most affected and who might be most panicked by Evergrande's collapse. And that is the thousands of households that have put up deposits for Evergrande to build them apartments. Now, my guess is that the Chinese government is going to bail them out, but force all the other investors, including foreign investors, to take a pretty serious haircut. So I think that's probably the right approach. You'll contain the panic. And frankly, if you're an investor lending into a property company that's 
in a lot of trouble, you probably deserve to take a bit of a haircut. I think when you talk about China, you have to start off with a position that the government has much more power and can do things that governments find a little bit hard to do in the West. You know, questions about, oh, will Evergrande default or not, or disappear or not, are much more complicated in China because you can get a, a wide range of outcomes. My guess is the same as James, that is that Chinese government cannot afford to allow large numbers of relatively poor Chinese uh, to lose their life savings. Uh, if you look at the portfolio and buildings of Evergrande, a lot of it is in what we call third tier cities. You know, they invest in uh, not the Beijings and the Shanghais, but basically the less important parts of China, less important cities. And when you look at who that is, that's overwhelmingly uh, rural migrants of one sort or another. I don't think the Chinese government can allow them uh, to just lose their savings. On the other hand, the Chinese government cannot afford to say big companies can lose money in us in China, no matter what, we'll bail them out. So we're going to see some sort of messy type arrangement, which will be richer in terms of looking after different groups of people in different ways than we might see uh, in the West. The second thing which I ought to say, which I know nothing about, but I'll conjecture broadly, and that is that Evergrande will spread into the financial sector more than we might think, just because we haven't seen something as big as this before. And secondly, I don't think it's going to spread enormously to the West. First of all, on Bob's point, I think he's right. It's not like Lehman Brothers. I mean, for the most part, this is about a company having most of their activity within China, while Lehman Brothers was an investment bank, you know, with great global reach. So I think it's not it's not a Lehman Brothers. And as James said, it's a it's a property company more than more than an investment bank. The second thing, picking up what Bob said about what they do in China, when I first went to China, I was a union official with the ACTU. And I went to a factory with a trade union delegation and I said to the owner of the factory, do you have workers' compensation in China? And it got translated and they came back and they said, no, if the workers break anything, they don't have to compensate us, you know, which wasn't quite what I was getting at. When I went back to produce the Airport Economist Second Tier, Third Tier Cities program, I went to the same factory, you know, some 20 years later or 25 years later. And most of the response was about how they could keep people in factories because people wanted to go and work in white-collar professional scientific offices. And I think that struck me from what Bob was saying, that you have this massive flow of rural labour to the cities, to the second and third tier cities. Everyone can't go to Shanghai or Beijing and Guangzhou, so they're going to... Chengdu and, and Qingdao and these other second and third tier cities. The two things China would worry about would be social unrest, if there's wage and price inflation, or if what Bob said, a lot of people lose their life savings. The way China can keep in control is by allowing this 300 million middle class to grow. And as James has often said on my program, the capacity to keep building the middle class in China with improving living standards, that's what keeps the social unrest at bay. So for that reason, understood, you don't want to want any moral hazard where someone's too big to fail, but you can do whatever you like. But the fear of social unrest from people losing their savings would be too much to bear. So for that reason, I think there will be intervention. And the interesting thing about China, of course, is that if you're one of those unfortunate officials to be caught up with his company, there could be consequences for you to warn 
other people not to take a similar step. I don't think the people tied up in this would get away with quite what the Lehman Brothers officials and other people did in, in the US when Obama bailed them out. Why should we necessarily care about this in Australia, right? Property has been driving the Chinese economy up, but you know, as Bob has conjectured, there's a chance that this might not have a huge impact on Australia. Why should we be talking about this today? If we're just sticking with Evergrande, I think we can feel pretty comfortable. What we would be concerned by is a spreading of this to impact China's growth more generally. You know, if we had some sort of debt crisis in China, or if in China's construction sector, it moved beyond Evergrande and the construction sector as a whole took a dive. In that sort of magnified scenario, you could point to a, a few channels through which the shock in China might spill over to Australia. The obvious one, of course, is on China's demand for Australian iron ore. That could potentially have impact both on the volume and the price of iron ore. The Australian government says itself for every $10 fall in the iron ore price, that takes away around $1.3 billion of tax revenue for the Australian government. So that's even leaving aside the direct hit to our miners. So there's that impact via iron ore. There's also a a more diffuse impact. If property prices in China were to fall, around 70% of household wealth in China is held in the form of real estate assets, housing assets. So you could also imagine a situation where property prices fall, household wealth, household balance sheets in China get hit. Households might be more reluctant to go on long-haul tourism destinations like Australia or send their kids overseas because they just don't have the stock of wealth they used to. Now, as I said, I think that's getting a bit ahead of quite a bit ahead of where we're at, but that's sort of a worst case scenario. That story I told of when I was a union official going to China a couple of decades ago, that was when, you know, China was this nation of shippers, the workshop of the world, manufacturing, exporting to the world. They've sort of gone from the nation of shippers to the nation of shoppers, the export-led developing manufacturing type economy to a, a nation, as, as James says, very much focused on internal domestic consumption and investment. And for that reason, I don't think there'd be any direct impact on Australia. But if there was contagion in the global economy as a result of Evergrande, that could be something to to be concerned about given the global financial crisis and the Asian financial crisis we had in 97. Or if there was something that domestically shocked the Chinese economy so that that had some impact on the demand for rocks and crops for Australian iron ore, LNG and agriculture or anything impacting the middle class in China. Um, For the most part, you know, China's got energy needs, it's got agricultural food security needs, and, you know, this enormous middle class wants somewhere like Australia to educate their kids and to visit. So provided it didn't have a huge domestic impact, that's probably where Australia needs to watch it very carefully. Or uh, there was such an external shock that the government in China couldn't handle, and then that caused some frictions within the Chinese political class, that would be something that Australia would have to worry about. But that's way down the track. I agree with James that the direct impacts are likely to be absorbed within China. I mean, one of the problems you're going to have with this uh, podcast is you have commentators who basically have the same views. But let me just sort of add to those views. It's my view that the most important thing that's happened to Australia in 20 years, without a doubt, has been the rise in China. You only have to look at our export patterns. You only have to look with, you know, China basically accounts for, I don't know, 40% or thereabouts of our export patterns. You've only got to look at how we went through the GFC, where mining investment, mainly focused towards China, 
at one stage reached more than half of all the investment that was going on. And all that fed into the immigration increases after 2005, which were also fossil because of China. So our interest in China is not in Evergrande per se. Our interest in China is what's happening to Chinese growth, because it's Chinese growth that has really mattered to us in the past and will matter to us in the future. In the past, that growth has mainly been coming out of Chinese construction, the house build boom, basically, and the road boom and the bridge boom, because basically the, the boom was fueled by the iron ore and to some degree coal. And those are international markets, of course, so they don't only depend on China. But at the margin, China has been the big, big player. So our interest is in the growth rate of China. The second thing I want to say, which I think is much more controversial, is that if you look back over the 20 years where China has been so important to us, and you look forward over the next 20 years, it's hard to imagine a strongly growing Australian economy without one which is closely tied to China. And by closely tied to China, I, I don't mean only iron ore and coal. I mean getting a, a share of what the middle classes are spending money on in China because that's where all that extra growth is going to be. And it's in that area that one gets very nervous about the overlap between the economics and the politics. It seems to me if I was only looking at economics, I think the Chinese impact on Australia would continue to be positive and maybe not as important as the last 20 years, but very important. When I look at the politics, then I get very, very edgy and, and, and nervous. So that's why we have to look at China, not for every grand per se, but you know essentially where China's going in the next 20 years and whether outside of iron ore and coal will still be closely tied in with the Chinese economy. I did a sort of forum with Tony Abbott middle last year and it seemed that there were almost like two groups in Australia talking about China. There were people like Bob Gregory and James and myself and the business community talking about the importance of trade and investment, the export growth, China's growth and the obvious success of the bilateral relationship in terms of trade and investment and education, something that James has devoted his career to. And there seemed to be a whole other group that only saw the world in terms of geopolitics and strategy and cybersecurity. It almost seemed like there was a sort of red corner and a blue corner. And one group of people that were mainly the spooks and the strategy people, they saw China purely as a threat under Xi Jinping, a difficult influence in the world. And they were saying, look, God, but really watch this. And we just, we really just have to diversify to India or Japan or somewhere else, which is just economically not possible. You know, China's always going to have a substantial influence over the next 20 years, as Bob said. And then there's another group, almost the, the business community that said, whatever we do, China's our biggest customer, you can't upset them. And it seems to me that there's obviously a very much a multi-layered nuanced view of the relationship with China because, of course, you're going to have important commercial relations, but ultimately there will be tensions because we've got very different, you know, very different political systems and very different institutions and how we, how we manage this is, is very important. And even if you go back to Gough Whitlam going over and recognising the People's Republic, you know, Gough Whitlam wasn't a, a Sinophile nor a Sinophobe. He saw engagement with China as, as just being a realistic part of the world. And I think current prime ministers and future prime ministers will have to see it as a pragmatic relationship, even though we have very, very different political systems and institutions. Uh, and that seems to be where, not just talk about Evergrande, but that seems to be why China's taken up 
so much attention, not just in Australia's debate, uh, but globally. From from the general tenor of the responses, it does seem that Australia is tied to China in terms of if we want to continue our economic growth. Is our relationship economically so bound up that we go as China goes? And therefore, if we do see their property market begin to slow down growth, then if China sneezes, does Australia get a cold? I've actually just written a paper on that question. Oh, there you go. <laughs> just, um, what a coincidence. A, a, a subheading of mine. In a structural sense, the ties between Australia and China are very strong and long-lasting. Over the last 20 years, China has been adding 60 million people to its middle class every year, right? 60 million people to its middle class every year. So if you're an Australian university or tourism operator, it's hard to find any other market in the world that's going to match those numbers. The Australian government itself in the 2017 foreign policy white paper estimates that between 2016 and 2030, China will add more new purchasing power than the US, Japan, India and Indonesia combined. Okay, so there is no other China. That said, you've got to be a bit careful because over the last 18 months, we've also had a case study of various Australian sectors being cut off from the Chinese economy. Coal, barley, cotton, wine, all of these have had their market access to China disrupted. What's been the impact? Well, the Australia-China Relations Institute, we've done some research into that precise question. And it turns out when you go down to the individual industry level, in most cases, not all cases, there are exceptions, but in most cases, when China closed the door, global markets adjusted. And it makes sense, right? Because Chinese importers then had to get their supplies from other countries, which meant those countries that those suppliers used to sell to are now available for Australian producers. So when it comes to coal and barley, pretty much all of the lost sales to China have actually been successfully diverted to alternative markets. As I said, there are some exceptions. Wine is a good example where sales to China fell and um, it just wasn't possible to find customers in alternative markets willing to pay the extremely high premium prices that the Chinese households used to be willing to pay. You'll always find lots of substitution all over the place. And so you will find good news stories. It depends on the relative weights of the two. And the thing that sort of worries me a little bit is in the old days, that is the last two decades, the China market was sort of fairly easy in the sense that it was hard to make money there, but it was not that hard to sell things there. Right? You've only got to look at the, the rapid rise of tourism, the huge change in foreign students and so on. It just seems to me that that's just going to get harder and harder and harder if we disengage too much from China. right? So I expect lots of little adjustments for some industries. But when you look back through time, if there's a big shock, countries do find it hard. So some countries find it hard, some countries find it easy. If you take the extreme case, like, quote, decoupling completely, I mean, that would just be absolutely traumatic. And I can't imagine it actually happening, by the way. The best presumption is to try and do the best we can with China and not really believe that uh, India, for example, can replace China. On Tim Harcourt's point, the interesting question is his description of, you know, the red corner and the blue corner is a pretty good description. And the question is, you know, how can we fill the middle ground in a better way? That's really the hard issue. So if you if you were to break the world up into, say, using his language, spooks and economists, there's not much dialogue across the groups. 
And it's sort of exaggerating. It looks a bit like what's happening in the US, you know, where to be a Republican or a Democrat suddenly matters in all sorts of ways you couldn't possibly have imagined a long time ago. So we need to, a way to bring these two regimes, or these two groups of people together, because it's right that the economists should worry about economics, and it's right that the, quote, spooks should worry about the things that they worry about. It's how to get the world together. That's the hard bit. The problem is that you often see when these things happen that the middle ground sort of disappears pretty quickly. I think that's where we've got to sort of worry about how we can keep that middle ground alive. To take one specific example, and which is a bit sort of in my own backyard, the idea that every research project with China has to be listed and vetted in a university strikes me as really quite weird. Because, you know, when you look at all the research projects that go on between Australia and university, they're overwhelmingly about increasing understanding between the two countries. Uh, they're overwhelmingly about sharing information on both sides. They're not about, you know, one country stealing the ideas of another. And yet, when the government was thinking about this, they were clearly dominated by this idea of stealing. My view is 20 years, over the next 20 years, in any agreement with China, we'll probably be stealing from them in some sense, because, you know, they are so far in some areas uh, a long way ahead of us. So how to keep the middle ground alive and well uh, seems to me to be one of our big issues. I think that's right, Bob. When we did the series on China and Australia, there were a couple of cases where the IP complaints were brought against Australia. The other issue I find is different systems and having a Western democratic system and, and open universities as opposed to a, a system where every, you know everyone's in the party and, and even if you're an entrepreneur or even a entrepreneur on the way down like Jack Ma, you've got to be sort of be a party member. I think there've been occasions, not, not at the university I'm at now, but previously where public comment that academics have made about China and Australia have been pulled down by the university for fear of upsetting the Chinese embassy or the Chinese consulate. Most universities have just had to go back and just say, well, this is how we do things in Australia. We have free and open debate. I don't think they're, they're things that are unsolvable, but they're just things that you get when you have a bit of a clash of institutions and, and cultural norms. But at the end of the day, you learn to deal with ways of getting through it. Do you think that there is, if you were, say, an Australian business looking to expand your market into China or relying on the Chinese market, would you be a bit conscious of that state presence in a new way recently, given more recent regulatory actions? You would be aware of it. And of course, you'd be aware of it. You know, if you're going into the Chinese market, it's your money on the line. So if you're not accurately assessing the risks, you're the one who's going to take the loss. And my experience, Tim would know this better than me, but I've talked to a fair few Australian companies and I don't think they're, um, you know, starry-eyed about China anymore. I think they've recognised the immense opportunities there, but they also recognised, particularly over the last 18 months and over the last, you know, since 2012, since Xi Jinping came to power, the risks engaging with the Chinese market have increased. So yeah, I think that it's on their radar, they're conscious of it, and they're factoring that into their decision making. I saw an interesting statement from the A2 Dairy Company recently. The CEO said that China was absolutely one of their riskier markets, but it was also their biggest opportunity by far. And so when he was weighing up the risks and the opportunities, it remained a central part of that company strategy for success. I think it's this risk return question. When, you know, Tony Abbott was saying everyone should just divert to India. I mean, even 
Peter Varghese says it is in the report that we take for ages for India to even to get a small fraction of the opportunity in China. And you take Pip Crawford, who runs a South Australian wine company, Shiraz Hill, you know, she's actually in Shandong province, South Australia's sister province, because she didn't want to go to Shanghai, where she's got to compete with the French and the Chileans and the South Africans. So she worked really hard on Shandong province, on, on, a, on Qingdao. So to tell her, well, you've got to now go to India or, or, or somewhere, I mean, it would be hard for her to move to another city, let alone a, a, another country. I think they're conscious of it. And I think they know, uh, have it with the growth of the amazing Chinese middle class, that odds on they're going to do, going to do pretty well. And when I was at Austrade, we surveyed where people lost money and more, more people lost money in the UK or the US than in China, basically because they went in thinking English-speaking, similar institutions, and, uh, you know, found they could get into pretty bad, you know, legal action in the in the States and so on. So it's not just language or institutions that makes this difficult. Uh, having said that, you know, I've been reading a lot of the work of Rowan Kallick, one of James's board members, and, and, and so on, and there has been a, a clear shift in the political environment in China. Even before when I took my MBA students to see the Great Mall of China in Chengdu, they'd built not just one CBD, but two CBDs that might suggest why Everground might be in a bit of trouble. But they built this enormous mall with an ice skating rink and all these things. My MBA class and I got invited to come to the opening because the mayor had been chucked in jail, so no one locally would come. So the uh, the welcoming party for this opening of this Great Mall of China was basically me and my MBA class and a few other Aussies. Yeah, things can happen Things can turn against you pretty hard in uh, in China. When you're a poor country and not politically powerful, you behave in one way. When you become perhaps the largest economy in the world and, you know, the dominant political power, you know, in at least a third of the world, then you'll start to behave in a different way. Looking ahead, increasingly we're going to find China behaving like... The U.S. has behaved in the past to some degree. You know, they will be thinking of themselves as, you know, a great world power, number one, as it were. They'll be thinking of themselves as the dominant power in Asia. When you think like that, then, you know, inevitably behaviour will change. And it's going to be lots, much more conflict, it seems to me, uh, between the U.S. and China in terms of, you know, having two powerful countries, where previously we used to have largely one. And that's going to make it really quite hard for us to sort of get used to that idea, I suppose. Looking ahead, we have to think, as been said earlier on the program, how to manage what I think is going to become a little bit harder uh, in terms of political relationships as the power shifts backwards and forwards between these two great nations. What I'd like to leave you with is just an observation that Australia is not the only country that is engaging with China economically. Far more countries have China as their major trading partner compared with the United States. And so when we're told by some commentators in Australia that we need to cut our exposure to China, well, I'm not against sensible diversification, but let's keep things in perspective. I mean, take our great friend, our security ally, the United States. For all the rhetoric, heated rhetoric between those two countries, don't forget that 
Donald Trump's objective in signing a bilateral trade deal with China, which cut Australia out, by the way, was actually to increase American access to the Chinese market. In other words, the Americans were trying to increase their exposure to China. I saw Joe Biden's Commerce Secretary the other day making the exact same point. She wants to build trade ties with America. So, and clearly, America has plenty of other concerns, security and strategic concerns, actually far beyond those concerns that Australia has, but still they're looking to build those economic economic links. We also shouldn't miss that as Australian coal producers, barley producers and so on, have lost access to the Chinese market, our security friends and allies have been amongst those who've been quite happy to snap up those markets that we've been lost. If you look at American coal exports to China over the last year, you'll see that they're doing very well indeed. And for all the talk coming out of Washington, that they stand shoulder to shoulder with Australia, Joe Biden's certainly not getting on the phone and telling American companies, don't take advantage of Australia when they're down. I think that's right. This is not all about us. So we may focus on disputes that China's had with Australia over barley or wine or, or, or cotton or so on. But China's had disputes with Japan, Korea, Ecuador, the European Union, Brazil, the United States, Canada. We see the prison bilaterally, but China's having its issues with other countries of, of the world. And ultimately, what Bob says about big powers throw their weight around. The thing is about the US is that if you don't like Donald Trump, you can vote him out or, or Joe Biden. And very hard to vote Xi Jinping out. So it's very, very different player for, for those institutions. And looking to the future, I think everything we need to look at economically in Australia is going to be about COVID, China and climate change. What's interesting about China is the prospects for renewable energy between Australia and China is actually quite exciting. I think we'll be putting the green back in the green and gold and doing some very exciting things with China in the future. And on a final note, you know, we all say in the press, oh, we need China, we need to, you know, make sure we don't lose them. Well, we need China, but China needs us as well. And when you look at 1.3 billion people, an enormous middle class with enormous needs, you know, they need energy security and they need food security and they need an education, you know, for future generations. So at the end of the day, don't take the line that, it's just about Australia needing China. It's a two-way street. You know, in many cases, we are good mates with a lot of the Chinese people, but the reason we have a bilateral relationship is comparative advantage and, and mutual benefit. That's all for today. Thank you to my guests, Bob Gregory, James Lawrenson, and Tim Harcourt. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe and I'll catch you back here next week.